You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Please rise if you are able for the reading of God's word. This letter is from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. This truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. And now at just the right time, he has revealed this message, which we announce to everyone, It is by the command of God, our Savior, that I have been entrusted with this work for him. I am writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. May God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior, give you grace and peace. I left you on the island of Crete so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. An elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife, and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. A church leader is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good evening. My name is Austin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you all tonight. Um, As Caroline said, we're starting a new series in Titus. A few months ago, in a staff meeting, Ben came up with the idea of doing a a small sermon series on ecclesiology. And uh, if you don't know that word, ecclesiology just means the study of the church. So we were talking around, you know, how how do we want to study what the church is? And we decided, well, let's let's do a couple weeks in the book of Titus in the summer. that word ecclesiology, it relates to a Greek word. I apologize, there's, there's a good amount of Greek tonight, which is not usually the case, but I'll try not to be too nerdy, but it's gonna be really helpful for us to understand what's going on in the book of Titus. If you didn't know, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and that word ecclesiology, um, it relates to a, word, a Greek word called ekklesia. And ekklesia uh, is often translated in the New Testament as church. But it more specifically means an assembly. And that's really important as we start talking about what a church is. 
because it means that our theology of church is not that it is just the church or some noun for Christian people, but it's actually something that is put together. The word is implying that it's a group of people who were assembled, uh, meaning that we are the object, and God is the one that puts churches together. So the book of Titus, as well as both of the letters to Timothy, are often called the pastoral epistles, and they are talking about the ecclesia, what the early church looked like. And on the face of it, when you read these books, you think, well, they're very instructional. They're giving a lot of little prescriptions and instructions. But when you read those and you put them together, implied in the instructions is the story of the early church being organized. We can start to piece together what is the story of a group of people being put together, being assembled by God. So, like I said, for the next four weeks, we're going to look at how and why the church was assembled through the lens of Paul's writing to Titus. When you think of church, when you, when you think about what church is for long enough, or if you hang around a church for long enough, I think it can seem pretty clunky and a little terrestrial, a, a little too normal, uh, especially for people who believe in God, the God who made the cosmos. Like, why would God, who made the roaring oceans and the daunting mountain ranges, why would he also put people together in little collectives that bicker and have potlucks and committees and grumble about music and build buildings, right? There seems to be a dissonance there. And I think for people who believe in God, we especially struggle with that. We think, well, how can church fit together with these, this grand idea of God that we just do this very normal thing that has all these weird things attached to it? And I'm hoping to make a case as we go through the book of Titus as to why God would not just have his people relate to him, but he would also assemble them together in groups with one another. Ekklesia, this Greek word I was just referencing, is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the, the Septuagint, to describe the people of Israel when they're put together. Uh, it's used in the Greek New Testament to describe the assembled people at local churches. So when Paul's writing his letters and we see the word church in English, uh, we might be wondering, was Paul talking about big church, big C church, like all the people of God, or is he just talking about like little groups of people like Salem Prez. And the answer is, actually, he's usually talking about little groups of people just like Salem Prez. Rarely is Paul referencing the church as something ethereal and big and global and historic. He's actually talking about the little communities of people like Salem Prez. And that's what this letter to Titus is about, is a little... Uh, a little bunch, little bunches of people, multiple little churches in the city of Crete where Titus is tasked with, with trying to kind of get things organized. So today we're going to flesh out two themes in chapter one of Titus. And those themes are about not big C church, not the global historic church, but little local churches, the collected, assembled congregations of Crete and what that means for us. And those two themes are vocation or organization, like doing the work together of becoming a church, 
and then elders. So let's start with vocation and organization. Um, have any of you ever read The Screwtape Letters? It's one of my favorite books by C.S. Lewis. If you've never read The Screwtape Letters, all right. If you've never read The, the Screwtape Letters, it's a satirical instruction manual uh, written from the point of view of demons who are corresponding about how to tempt Christians away from God, okay? And in it, there's an elder demon who's writing to an apprentice demon on how to thwart God's plans in the world. In, in one of those letters, he's talking about uh, C.S. Lewis is using this, this elder demon to say that a really great way to tempt people away is to romanticize church as something really ethereal and metaphysical and then pit that against the idea that church is just really in your experience this local kind of normal thing. So I'm going to read you a passage from this letter. It says, one of our great allies, meaning an ally of evil to tempt people away from God, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. All our patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad, and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between the expression, the body of Christ, and then the actual faces around him in the next pew. What Lewis is picking at is this idea that it's really easy for Christians to want the faith to only be something high-minded and mystical. He conjures up this image of a half-finished building project, an unimpressive set of neighbors, an old hymnal that feels hard to read, and he's implying that these tempters, these demons, might use these things to create a wedge of doubt. And I think a lot of us can probably relate to that if you've been around a church. A modern version might be things like the sound system not working right, or a misspelling in the bulletin, or an underwhelming small group experience, or a bunch of emails about congregational meetings or directories. Surely those are just folly, right? Part of some human bureaucracy that destroys the real thing that God designed, right? But this is actually, I'm going to argue, precisely how and why God made the church, according to the book of Titus. It's actually part of our formation to not just have this high-minded view, but to have to experience 
this very normal, sometimes clunky community. God created people to be like him. We're made to bring order and beauty to things, just like he's done with all of creation. And he allows our messes to become chaos, like Babel or the pre-flood world, and then he brings them into order and beauty. And we were created to do the same through our work together in the church. We're learning how to do that in the rest of the world by having to first learn how to deal with each other in the life of the church. We were called to create political structures and economies and households, and we're really sanctified in that by doing life together in the church. It says in verse 5 that Titus was sent to a specific place, Crete, for a specific work to put things in order. So Titus is supposed to do work in a specific place, and he's supposed to be doing something intentional when he's there. And these are things that we were all created for. We were created to be located somewhere, to settle down in a place, and we were created to do something specific. Titus's place was Crete. Ours is Winston-Salem. The work was to organize the church alongside others. The work is the same for us. It says in verse 7 that the elders appointed are to be stewards of God's household. And that Greek word for steward, or it could be translated manager, is oikonomon, from which we get our word economy. And this is where I love Reformed theology, which is the theology that Presbyterians uh, subscribe to. I think this is where Reformed theology does its best work. A lot of modern Protestant theology has kind of ignored these verses, or at least I'll say evangelicals, which we would be included within, uh, have ignored a lot of what, what Titus has to say about the organization of the church being important. And sometimes I feel like uh, we can fancy the church just a layover until we get to heaven. Uh, sometimes I think the church is treated as a sort of train station, as if it was like um, a platform nine and three quarters where Christians wait for the Heaven's Express, where, where it's just a, a holdover with little regard for uh, the muggle world around it, right? That's sometimes I think how... Um, how the church can be conveyed. Now, for those of you keeping score, I think that might be my first Harry Potter reference from the pulpit. Thank you. If you've come to church here for longer, um, it's a habit around here. Uh, in reality, the church is actually more like Hogwarts. It's a discipleship school. A biblical church is not a revival tent. It's, it's actually not something that's really temporary. It's not a holding area just to collect outsiders in hopes that they linger long enough to make it to board the train. It's a discipleship school. It's a place of spiritual formation. The church's primary job is not to attract the world, as evangelicals often think it is. If it was, we wouldn't need elders. We wouldn't need orderly worship, right? Paul wouldn't send instructions if it was just a temporary thing. The church, according to Titus, according to 1 Timothy, according to Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 
is designed to form Christians back to our original design in God. Participating in the local life of the church is part of what makes us formed back into the way he originally designed us. It's where we learn how to coexist with other people, how to manage what he's given us, how to steward things that are given to us, so we can live out God's beautiful and orderly designs imperfectly now, but perfectly in the new Jerusalem. We were made to find our own Crete, our own city, not just some random place where we go get a job for a season. We were made to be located somewhere. We were made to do what Jeremiah 29 says, which is to build houses, settle down, plant gardens. The church is full of the unlearned, just like a school is. Because it's not a place, it's not a destination, it is a place of formation, it's a place of growth, which is actually what makes it so hard, that it's full of unlearned, not fully formed people. It should be unfinished, unformed, imperfect, and that is the vocation of the church. That is why we participate in a church. For me, at my most idealistic, which would have been about 15 years ago, I eschewed giving money to a church because I said, that, well, that's a waste of resources. I saw committees of planning as bureaucratic time wastes. I thought buildings were inevitable money pits. I thought the fact that the church couldn't articulate exactly what it was trying to get done as a flaw in the system. In other words, I was Screwtape's dream. Gardening, homemaking, organizing church, picking a city to settle in, not knowing exactly where it's going, are not anti-spiritual. And Titus is actually teaching us this. These are actually the very core of God's design for humans, which requires the church. The church is not an optional part of it. It's, it's, a, it's an integral part of the design. So that's the, the organizational, vocational part of this passage. Let's, look at, let's talk about elders now. Um, Titus's specific mandate from Paul was to appoint or stand up slash set apart, that's the language that's used here, elders in every city. And the Greek word here, city, is polis, which means city, but it's also sort of a related word to, to politic or polity, a local interconnected set of people that is organized, okay? So in these passages, we have polis, from which we get politics or polity, and we also have oikonomos, if you remember from earlier, and that's the word we get economy from. So we get this sense that, that there's something organized, there's something economical, there's something household-driven, there, there's something happening here that has some, some bones to it. I have to say that there are texts in the New Testament that have been traditionally and historically interpreted as mandating that elders are men. And in the Presbyterian church that we're a part of, that is the tradition that we follow. Um, but even if you don't agree with that, if you think that that's the wrong interpretation of these passages, what I really want to focus on tonight is to show the way that Scripture describes elders. 
Um, if we were in one of those other passages in like 1 Corinthians, for instance, then I, I would talk more about that gender component. But the emphasis in Titus is this rich description of the elder. And I really want to draw out that description for us. So even if you disagree with the traditional view, whether you believe that elders are men, whether you believe elders are men and women, Titus is describing what are the characteristics of the people who lead the church. What is the type of person who ought to shepherd churches and why? And I want to start with a couple of misconceptions that people have drawn out of passages like from Titus. Uh, we have to build our definition from what Scripture says, not just extrapolate what we think it's projecting. So, for instance, people might assume that an elder must be married because it says husband of one wife. But Paul does not say that an elder must be married. Paul implies they should not be divided in their allegiances, whether that be adultery or polygamy or anything like that. Paul doesn't say you have to be married to be an elder. Paul is just saying you have to be undivided in your allegiances. You might also notice that Titus and not the congregation picks out the elders. And in our tradition, we nominate elders from within the congregation. And Paul doesn't say that the congregation cannot nominate elders. It also doesn't say a bishop must appoint the elders. It implies, actually, instead, that someone outside of themselves should be appointing or nominating these elders. The emphasis is that they're not self-appointed. They're being brought up from uh, Titus in that book, and that's been a tradition that's been carried on through uh, the ages by churches that have bishops, but also by churches who nominate from the congregation like we do. So elders do not need to be married, nor do they have to be appointed by a senior leader like Titus. Those would be sort of a little beyond what's being said here. The emphasis is that elders are to be loyal to a monogamous relationship with their spouse if they are married. And they do not campaign or self-nominate. They receive an external calling from the people within their community. Elders are blameless, it says. And that can be a little tricky because you might think, doesn't this church have, um, I believe it's entirely populated by sinners, so how do we find these blameless people? And I think the best way that I've seen this put is that they're unimpeachable. Uh, elders are so transparent and quick to own their failure that they can't be indicted by scandal because they're the ones who are bringing up their own failure. So it's not saying that they're perfect. It's saying they're unimpeachable. I doubt that Paul, the writer of Romans, with its rich descriptions of imperfection, I doubt that Paul, the writer of 1 Corinthians, that diffuses elevating marriage over singleness or singleness over marriage, I doubt that he would not clarify that those would be disqualifications given that he was an unmarried man who was very aware of his faults if those were disqualifications. So I think it's more the positive attributes that he's talking about. Elders are stewards, they're managers, and by manager, I think of a shepherd which is language that is used throughout the New Testament for people who lead God's people. Uh, they, are, they are people who, who uh, steward God's people with care. They organize a flock with attention to detail. 
You could think of a farmer who sees a large acreage and pays attention to what's going on in each acre across seasons, rotating crops, right? Or eyeing changes, making adjustments, managing with thoughtful care throughout seasons and years, whether that's um, taking a herd of sheep around or being aware of the crops that you're taking care of. So elders do not need to be married. They do not need to be appointed by a bishop. They do not need to be perfect. But they are to be loyal to their monogamous covenantal marriage relationship if they are married. They receive external calling and affirmation from others. And they're quick to admit their failure rather than being interested in preserving their rightness. And this is why the description of elders in Timothy and Titus include the household. Paul is not telling Titus to pick only husbands with children. Having a household is not the requirement. Paul's not saying only people with households can be leaders in the church. He's saying people who have struggles in their households, they need to focus on that. If you have enough going on at home, you don't need to add the household of God to your plate is part of what he's saying. But the other part is that for those who do have households, how those function indicates how one might also care for and guide the church. So that's why Paul's using this household language. Uh, I want to name two avoidable ditches into which I think evangelical churches keep veering in our day and age that's leading to an epidemic of scandal and church abuse that I think is deviations from what Paul's teaching here. The first is letting great speakers and thinkers be elders on the merit of their preaching or teaching. How many times do we hear about a pastor who is, quote, such a great speaker, such a great teacher, and then we find out that they're terrible for their staff or for the leaders of their church? If a pastor doesn't know how to lead and manage people, organize people, but they're a great thinker, they should be a professor. And evangelicals have made this mistake of being so focused on good speaking and thinking that we can miss the most, the, that most of the qualifications for elders actually emphasizes stewarding people, managing people, like someone who is gently leading a household. How often, like I said, do these scandals break and it's some great author or speaker who was pretty, pretty inept when it came to the people they were co-laboring with. Um, I feel like in those interviews, I read one last week, it always says, yes, ah, but they were such a great teacher. And I think, well, that, that's fine, but we're missing what, what this passage is actually saying the elders of the church look like. Uh, some churches have been too eager, or some traditions of which I think we could be um, in, if they were in the cultural stream of evangelicalism, we, we only want the merit of writing and thinking to be the thing that makes for an elder. But it can do so much damage to the church, even if it's unintentional, when we make those the only qualifications. The pastoral epistles actually have very little to say about the ability to teach or do theological thinking. When Titus talks about being able to teach, especially in verse 9, it's really talking about the ability to have healthy piety, that elders can convey to others a, a prayerful, pious life in God. So 
have one more Greek nerd moment here, but um, the word where it says sound or wholesome doctrine in your English Bibles, that Greek word is actually the word from which we get our word hygiene or hygienic from. It means healthy. So you could paraphrase this section of the Greek as claiming that in English, elders hold on words of faith and they come alongside people with healthy teaching. So let me read that again. Elders hold on words of faith and they come alongside people with healthy teaching. So this first ditch is appointing an elder on the merit of people liking their preaching and ignoring the important attribute of being able to manage and mind the whole household of God. The other ditch is appointing people who have really strong leadership gifts but don't have that healthy spirituality. You can't be a bossy, bullish, strong personality and fit this description. Think of how many pastoral failures are famous speakers or really strong-headed leaders. Uh, very few are the church scandals where the person is a decent speaker, skilled at holding together a group of people in purity and peace. And I just feel like I'm struggling with this all the time, of falling into one of these ditches, wanting to be an impressive thinker and speaker, or really pushing to get my way and not really having a robust prayer life. And what this passage is saying is actually trying to remind us that if you want to call me to account and other elders or people who lead the church, then really it's, their, it's not their ability to speak and it's not their ability to get things done. It's their ability to have a healthy spirituality that they can share with other people. These epistles have a lot to say about how elders organize people, hold people together, draw people in with each other. They have very little to say about being a good preacher and they have a lot to say about not being a bully. So a biblical elder looks so much more to me like a fantastic grandparent than an engaging intellectual or some hustle culture entrepreneur, which is often how we view the best pastors. I imagine that biblical elders are akin to thoughtful grandparents who pay for a beach house and they organize the meals because they have the time, they set aside the time for that. They help facilitate the travel of their adult children and their grandkids. And once everyone arrives, they may check in with each and every one of them, one-on-one, -on -one, maybe. But more importantly, they create the space and they manage the environment in which the whole family thrives. That, that's what I picture um, Paul's uh, elder description uh, looking like by analogy. So as we close... This is what I hope you'll take away. The church is a normal place. It's a school for growing into being a Christian. It can be hard, like family. It can be beautiful, but it can also be boring. Like government, it can be slower than we want, and it can be really frustrating for idealists. It can make community life feel more practical than romantic. At its worst, at its worst, the leaders try to be perfect and self-appointed, which is to say they try to be God. 
at its best, working through the normalcy, it can refine us to be more like God, which was the plan. The plan is that we would settle in with each other. For some, the initiatives for children, or social justice, or the music will not be robust enough. For others, it will feel like church is asking too much. And if we're living in both of those, that probably means it's working. Because for both groups, it draws us back to the promise in verse 9. Paul says in verse 9 that the elders have a strong belief in the trustworthy message they were taught. And that message is that the church is here to make us more gentle, to make us more patient, to make us more loyal, more generous, more frugal. In other words, we're not called to find a church that is the best at blank. Instead, it's to just live faithfully within the group that you've been assembled with, the people of God put around you, long enough that we work together, that we learn from each other, that we do not become more like God through our own effort, but actually by showing up and being with each other, we're reminded that we are living into that by what he has done. Rather, that we let him act upon us by our getting together with one another, just as he did when he died for our sins. And just as he does every week, when he nourishes us from this table. Amen. So that's why when Christ was with his friends on the night that he was betrayed, he gathered around them and he didn't make a demand of them for their perfection, for their obedience. For them to hold it together. He didn't leave them with a set of instructions that said, you better not mess this church up when I'm gone. Instead, he said, he said, thanks to his father. That was the first thing he said. He said, thank you for feeding us. He gave thanks and he broke bread and he said to his, his brothers who would betray him, he said, this is my body broken for you. I will continue to nourish you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. It's the blood of the new covenant shed for you. A covenant that demands nothing from you because I have paid it all. And he said, whenever you gather together, drink this cup in remembrance of me. Um, as Jackson said, we're one of the things that we want to be as a church, as a household of God, is a place where people can wrestle with what they believe. And so if you're here this evening and you're wondering, what, what do I believe? Um, and you're questioning whether Jesus is the one that satisfies, then you're in good company because there are plenty of other people in this room who are struggling with that as well. Okay. And so if doubt is the thing that causes you to struggle with whether to come to this table, then as Ben would say, the bar is very low. Do not make it any higher than he made it. And at the same time, if you don't feel like Christianity, as in you want to follow Jesus, is faithful to your conscience, 
then we would encourage you to not take of the supper. And that's not because we don't want you to. It's because we want you to be able to be faithful to your conscience and wrestle with what you believe. And so for us, this is not just a ritual. And we don't want you to have to feel like you enter into something that doesn't feel honest to what you believe. So I just want to always remind you that the bar is very low. It requires of you that you want it that you desire to follow after Jesus and you want to be nourished by him. And that is it and that is all. So do not make that bar any higher than it needs to be. Um, let me pray for us and then I'm going to give instructions. Father, we are so grateful that you have built this church. You have assembled these people together. We did not design it. It has flaws because we participate in it, but we're thankful for the work that you've given us. Um, I do pray tonight as, and for these next weeks as we study this book that we would also not make an idol of the church, that we would know that it still, even as a school, is, is a means to an end. It is a vehicle through which we know you because ultimately you have designed us to be in relationship with you. And thank you that you communicate that to us each week through nourishing us through this meal that reminds us of the debt that your son paid on the cross and the joy of the resurrection that we celebrate in the way that he brought the supper back when he rose from the grave. We love you, Lord. Remember, we love these rascals.